This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you drinking tonight, Andrew Doyle? What am I drinking? I'm drinking uh, Dash Water. Lime flavor. Dashed water? It's called dash water. So, uh, uh, you know. Does it have like vitamins or like some sort of speed element? No, like a little bit? Actually, it's just uh, pure. Right, my phone's off. It's just pure. Um, the idea, I shouldn't be advertising anything, but this is uh, the idea of dash is that it's, it's made from wonky fruit. So it's made from the fruits that get thrown away because no one wants to buy a wonky lime. And what it does, oh. it just infuses, infuses the slight, the, the mildly sparkling water with a, a flavor, and there's zero sugar and zero calories, and it's very, very, uh, it's good for rehydration purposes. Okay, I'm not that's weird. Ice wine. Are we st- are we started now? By the way, yeah, we're just rolling now. We're rolling. We've started with an advert from a company. That's good. It's a good way to start. Well, you're always drinking something avant-garde. I am. I know. I should say at the start, Ben Benjamin. Sorry, I know that annoys you. Um, I do. I am hosting a television show tonight, so I'm going to have to be quite strict on time. Yes. Uh, and I'm aware that you, we've done this a few times, and you like to speak well into the night. Um, it's very <laughs> romantic. It's very, very romantic. But the thing is, you know, you've got a wife, I've got a job. You know, we shouldn't be doing that. No, absolutely not. It, it's it's mid into the morning, not late into the night from my point of view. So it's not that right. Pro- oh, okay. perhaps as okay. romantic as, as you suppose. Although your lighting setup is very romantic. Yeah, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, uh, next next level, you know, bookshelf. No, I, know, I, know. I know what you're trying to do. That little curiosities back there. I got a yeah, red brandy dragon, a, a butt. Yeah. Just make sure you don't have uh, a compromising book on that shelf. Because, you, know, you know, back here, they um, there was something where I think either Michael Gove or some politician put a photo of their bookshelf up and people then found a book by a, uh, a historian who had been discredited or something or connected to Holocaust denial or something. And they tried to say, because he had the book, he was whatever. That's what oh, they well. do. Yeah. So I always like to put, you know, copies of Mein Kampf behind me if I'm, if I'm doing a bookshelf. Interview. I'm really surprised that you have such a flat background. Uh, sometimes. Well, yeah, but I'm in the back room, like a dirty secret. Oh, oh, you're in the green room, but it's beige. Cause no, no, I'm not. I'm in the back of my house. I've got this room is generally for the laundry. I mean, I'm literally sitting next to a big pile of uh, laundry that is currently drying. Um, oh, yeah. I thought you didn't want to see that. I could have angled the camera so you saw that, but you don't I would love to, to watch you fold clothes. It would probably help, like, to get a different like part of your brain activated while we while we speak. It would, you'd see the my more domestic side if we did that. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's helpful because I know that's not what you want to be talking about today. 
Well, I, 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 I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but you did, uh, you did give a nice little entryway about that book thing, somebody being judged mm -hmm. by some sort of guilt by association. And one thing that I think is really fascinating about like this kind of liberal slash post-liberal kind of environment where we're always trying to navigate this Overton window and pushing against it, and we're always positioning ourselves between extremes. Everybody's yeah. always doing that. And so, like, and every once in a while, somebody such as you or, or me, which I think I'm pretty mild and moderate, I get positioned as an extreme. And what happened to you, you got positioned as an extreme case. And then you have to well, reposition yeah. yourself, right? I don't, but I never think in terms of positioning myself. I, I, turn, I think in terms of just saying what I think. And then I get positioned. But I imagine this is the experience of most people insofar as, you know, I don't think you can think strategically about how you're presented because otherwise you're just you're not being authentic and you're just kind of you know playing to some kind of imaginary crowd i don't see the point of that uh i think mm -hmm. the be well, what i do and what i think i actually think what most creative people do is that they just you know if you've got a genuine sense of artistry you create what you want to create and other people decide you know what you uh actually helen dale was talking about this in her Substep post today she was talking about the, uh, she quoted salman rushdie on this the idea of writing to be liked that's not the phrase you should read her Substep because it's a much cleaner phrase than that but that is i think a real problem not just in terms of where we are in terms of commentate com commenting on what's going on in the world but in terms of creativity if you you know if you if you write books or write comedy or write art generally that is designed to appease or or, or, or make yourself popular, then can you really be said to be an artist in any serious sense of the word? I don't think so. Uh, I yeah. think, and to be an artist, you have to have a fealty to your muse, don't you? And it seems weird applying that to what you're talking about, which is basically political discourse and the way that we all get kind of pigeonholed or siloed, as Helen puts it. Um, I think we've all been siloed. I think what's what's weird about, you know, I know the last time we were going to talk, it was after I had a major pile on at, at Christmas from what we would call, I suppose, the woke left. Now, the last couple of days, I had a major pile on from uh, largely gender critical feminists, the, 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 the group whose values and ideals I uh, support. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I find it very interesting. Sometimes, so I did an article for the, the Daily Mail last year about the pro progress pride flag. I don't know if you saw that one. I was talking about why I think the pride flag no longer represents gay people, why I think it is effectively a kind of symbol of anti-gay sentiments and misogynistic sentiments. And because of that, I got piled on by two different groups at the same time. That was a first. I got piled on by fundamentalist Christian Americans, a lot of your lot, uh, calling me like a sodomite or a degenerate and all of that. And then at the same <laughs> time, at the very same time, and they weren't even flirting the way you do. It wasn't that. They were being serious. And at the same Wait, time, flirting with homophobia is homophobia. You know, talking you. dirty, you dirty sodomite. Go on, talk. You know, you the kind of thing. And then, um, but at the same time, I got piled on by the woke left, who were calling me all sorts of, you know, you're a homophobe, transphobe. So I was getting it from both sides with equal ferocity. And then, um, but but what's different? I mean, that was that was a sort of compared to what I've had since. It's very different. Like the the, the pile on at Christmas was so intense i was trending for a few days uh this last one i ended up trending again so whereas I'm, i've got quite used to dogpiling and being the, the target um this has entered a new phase where every time i get dogpiled now i become i, I trend and then it, it becomes much much worse and i really don't want that much attention right i'm not i'm not <laughs> that kind of person 
So, um, and it was in this particular time, I think was the limit for me. I, that's why I've sort of decided only to use Twitter sparingly from now on. I think it's terrible for my mental health. I think I get sucked into this stuff. It's hmm. partly my fault because I am fascinated. Like I, I, I see this stuff and I think, wow, like what? It would never occur to me to write an abusive message to a stranger online. It would never cross my mind. And so to see hundreds of people doing it to me, I do find that grimly fascinating. I want to kind of understand it. And so I get sucked in and I can't move away. And of course, what you should do, I think Tyler, the creator said this in a tweet, God, there's no such thing as cyberbullying. Just put the damn phone down. He said it in a different way than me. I think probably a more interesting way. But I can't do that. And I know that about myself. I get hooked. I get sucked in. Mm. I also get a deep sense of injustice. I'm like, I'm seeing all these people just lying about me. Uh, and then I have to get involved and I have to defend myself. And the problem with that is you end up in this kind of vortex, this kind of spiral. So now I've decided I've set up a Substack. I'm going to write pieces on a Substack. I'm going to talk about the stuff I always talk about on Twitter, but I'm going to do it on Substack, which is better because I can do it in longer form. And then people who subscribe can comment and I will talk to those people. I'll actually have some conversations. And mm. if the trolls want to pay me four pound a month to come on and call me a, a disgusting, queer, degenerate sodomite, good for them. That's fine. You know, at least they're paying. It's fine. Um, but really what that will do is filter out those kinds of people, the kind of bad faith actors. Um, and I'll be able to actually talk about this stuff because a lot of the debates that cause this pile on are about things I genuinely, I genuinely want to discuss. You know, it, a lot of it was around the issue of pronouns when it comes to trans identifying people which is a conversation I actually want to have. So when it started and I was getting criticism, but it was robust, but it wasn't abusive, I was engaging and I was quite happy to engage. And I actually like that. I, I sort of welcome that. Then, as I said in the article I wrote for Unheard today, what happened was I started seeing stuff about the gays. One particular person kept going on about the gays are like this. Oh God, aren't the gays awful? And my ears were pricked. I was thinking, that's a bit dodgy. But I answered and I went into it. But then five six hours later we're into the middle of the night or early morning <laughs> and suddenly there's big um threads where gay people are sending me messages get uh, gay campaigners are sending me messages gay campaigners are getting involved showing these threads and then suddenly i have feminists or people who say they're feminists openly arguing on my timeline how evil gays why are gays so evil why are they misogynist why are they prone to pedophilia so the oldest prejudice against gay people just playing out in front of me then one of the feminists who who'd attacked me um, someone else posted an audio clip of them saying that she would really rather like to murder gay men. And and I'm thinking, you know, at this point, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. So I'm, I'm, I think that was the straw. I think at that point, I thought, because I've been thinking about it for a while. I think ever since what happened at Christmas, I've been thinking Twitter is absolutely not for me. I'm not good at it. I'm not a naturally combative mm. person. I'm not a naturally provocative person. I don't like fights. So I will just back away from this now. Just go to a substack have the conversations. I actually think this is a sensible approach. And by the way, Benjamin, my boiler just came on. The bad news about me being in the back room of the house is that there's a boiler here. Can you hear it? Is it disrupting my sound? No, we're fine. We're fine. I need, I, need, I, I need to disabuse you of a notion, Andrew Doyle. Okay. okay. You just said you're n not naturally provocative. Yeah. I'm, you're not? Well, I'm not, am I? I mean, isn't well, that how you like rose to fame with Titania? Well, I don't know if that was, but I didn't think that was provocative. That's the thing. I mean, I, I knew that there were, there was a dearth of comedians addressing this issue, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do it. 
I could see that people got very upset and, and treated it as controversial. To my mind, it, it really never was because my target with that was always clear. Do you know, it's coming up to five years since I published that book, the Titania book. Um, and everything wow. I wrote in that seems to have got worse. Everything I wrote in that, a lot of it has come true, almost like it's unprotected. <laughs> um, and, but I never saw it as controversial. I mean, I'm not naive. Mr. Wilkmus. Yeah, I understand that it, it was interpreted as, I understand, and I saw that all along. And when I started getting death threats and violent threats of violence and all this, I knew people weren't happy, right? So I, I mean, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite sharp like that. I pick up on that stuff. Um, but, um, you know, when people are telling you to, to die in a volcano or whatever, you think, okay, yeah. I've touched a nerve. But on the other hand... But isn't, I, isn't, your, isn't your job as a... I, unless you're a strict journalist or s yeah. just strictly describing something, isn't your job to provoke? Isn't your job to ask questions, to, to trace yeah. fault lines, to find the tensions? And isn't that what's interesting? I yeah, I, I, I just never saw it as provocation. I, I, so look, I've, I've been doing stand-up for, what, 20 years. Uh, I've done like seven stand-up shows at the end of a fringe you know, each one on very different themes, sometimes each one with a different persona. And I've always, I've always, I've always seen my job as to just kind of punch up at the, the, the powerful and to have a go at the follies in society. Um, that's how I, that's what I naturally do. Not by the way, because I think comedians can't punch down, they can punch whichever way they like. I just don't happen to do that. And so, you know, I'd, I'd always had to go at the government. I'd had to go at the Tories. I'd had to go at the Republicans, whoever was in power at the time. I'd had to go at what, um, what's been described as closed systems of thought. Um, and so this was just the new one. This was the latest one where I could see a movement that was comprising of largely of powerful upper middle class people who were bullying others into silence. And I thought, okay, and no one was mocking them. And I thought, okay, well, that's the that's the, the group that ought to be mocked at the moment. But of course, people in power don't like being laughed at. And therefore, yeah. then came the, the threats and the abuse and all the rest of it, which is fine because it, it does suggest you're doing something right. You know, it, 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 but, um, but to go back to that question, I am interested in that because I'm fully aware, I've been told by many people that I am a controversial figure. But I would, I would, put, I would ask that back to you, I'd put it to you. Can you name for me what is my most controversial opinion? Because I don't know what they are. I don't know. I don't know why huh. lib liberal values, which I'm basically a hundred percent, basically hundred percent all about. Like everything I do is about the promotion of liberal values. I don't understand how that's controversial. But you might be able to, as you say, disabuse me. I could be wrong. What yeah. wait, wait, specifically? Give me one example of a hugely controversial, provocative opinion I've got. Let's hear it. Uh, that Christians are mirthless. Oh, that was the thing that upset you last time. But actually, I don't <laughs> see that as a. I don't see that as an insult. Uh, I like my Christians to be mirthless. I mean, insofar as, <laughs> insofar as, Jesus didn't crack many jokes, and why should he? And uh, you he's know, hilarious. I, I don't know. He's he's really hilarious. You should read Luke sometime. He's freaking hilarious. Funny. The smashing up the temple is quite funny, um, in a sort of slapstick kind of way. But I always saw I always saw Jesus as fairly mirthless. I, I certainly I suppose what it comes down to is I went to a convent school. It was run by a very scary nun um, who isn't with us anymore. So I won't mention her name, although she did beat me quite severely with a slipper for something I didn't do. I think we've spoken about that before because I've never got over it. Um, but I think ultimately um, 
I, I saw it as mirthless growing up. It was mirthless. And that is the impression that I'm left with. I wasn't saying, which I think you got upset about, I wasn't saying that Christians are incapable of mirth because I'm one and I'm full of mirth. I like oh, to think. Oh, okay. So there we go. You're a Christian. Are you Christian first or a liberal, liberal first? I'm Catholic. I'm Catholic. Okay. Um, uh, am I liberal? Well, those two things are not, I mean, it's not like one or the other, is it? <laughs> I think you can be both. No, it's not. Um, it depends. I'm just, I'm just wondering because I'm still waiting for the, come on, Benjamin, I'm not going to let you wriggle out of that. I'm not saying that you, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that you have a provocative position, but you know where, I mean, as a comedian, you know where the knife needs to go. Yeah. I don't. And what's the difference between that when, when you're doing something in humor and when you're in the other role of commenting or, or with your, with your new show, like when, when you interviewed Hayden, that was not. Uh, you were not in the mode of a uh, provocateur or a comedian. You were, but you were still looking for tensions. So what, what, what's interesting about the pronoun discussion is that there's a lot of stuff there and there's strong opinions. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I'm not, I'm not looking for tension. That's, that's a misreading. I'm not, I huh. didn't interview Debbie Hayton to provoke. Uh, I interview lots of authors who have new books out. And I want to hear about their opinions, particularly a book like that, which is very personal, all about an individual experience. And mm. I think it's really fascinating. I love reading books by people who have a completely different experience of the world than I do. And in my show, I try to get people on from all different points of view. It doesn't seem that way. And the reason it doesn't seem that way is because so many of the alternative points of view don't come on. They just say, no, I'm not going to go on your far right show or the rest of it. Um, so I don't end up with the breadth of views that I would like to see. But what I wouldn't have, I knew that, I know that De Debbie is a hate figure for an awful lot of people. Um, but what I wouldn't do is not bring someone onto the show to discuss a book that they'd written simply because their views would not align with absolutely everyone who watches and likes the show. And I think the people who, who watch the show regularly understand that. I mean, the number of times, I regularly have comedians on my panel, people like, uh, Louis Schaefer, Jonathan Cogan, Leo Kurse, Nick Dixon, whoever, who a lot of the people who watch, because a lot of my viewers are left-leaning feminists, they get annoyed by some of the jokes they tell and, and they tell me so. But they also understand that the show is about hearing different points of view and comedy as well. You know, it's about comedy. So there's no one, no one is going to be ring-fenced on that show from comedy. I don't. So the idea of me saying, okay, I'm not going to invite Debbie Hayton onto my show because it might annoy certain people who watch it that's a you problem that's 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 not my problem and i i i would invite more controversial people than debbie on onto my show if, if they were interesting and smart and had something to say i mean by the same token i often get like the when the far right dog pile me which they do every now and then because because i'm opposed to racism and they don't like that they don't like that I, oh. <laughs> you know and, and so they go at me and they keep saying why won't you platform this really weird crazy racist and I'm like because that is not a smart or interesting person and that's not going to make for good tv i'm not interested in a kind of slanging match with someone you know who has nothing to say and and so I, so that's my point is that i mean you're talking about provocation i don't think the comedy i do is designed to provoke because there is comedy that is designed solely to provoke and i don't think there's anything wrong with that that's not my style that's not what i do and the shows and the things i write and the discussions i have they are not designed to provoke either, but they do end up provoking. I know that. But I think because we live in a world where a lot of people don't want to have conversations about certain topics, 
inevitably, when you narrow the Overton window, the capacity to provoke is going to expand exponentially. And that's what's mm -hmm. happened. And I cannot be in the position where I'm afraid of upsetting people or because it hurts their sensibilities or that they cannot bear that anyone disagrees with them on the slightest point. I cannot run my life like that and I cannot run my show like that. So my, my advice is, is if you are of that kind of that ilk that absolutely cannot bear the idea that someone in the world somewhere might disagree with one small thing that you've got to say, then don't watch my show. Happy for you not to. Right. I, I'm, I'm trying to appeal to people with a bit more of an open mind who want to hear other experiences, even when and especially when uh, they vehemently disagree with them. I, what I find fascinating about the um, the situation that you found yourself in repeatedly, it, and I find myself in repeatedly, um, but with your situation right now, is that it kind of it seems to show fault lines. Um, well, you, you have to you have to think through it because not everybody who is dogpiling on you or being mean to you is a good faith actor. And they could be plants. They could be like working in the GC feminist community against the GC feminist community. There's all these power dynamics. You just watch this thing yeah. occur over and over and over again. But like, there's this tension between the group who is, uh, working towards women's rights to either defend or advance them. Then the gay, the gay rights thing, it kind of like took a step back and then was supplanted by the trans rights thing. And the trans rights and the women's rights are like really at odds because they're trying to fight over the same kind of pie yeah. in a way. Right. But, but what, what I saw in you was this reemergence of the tension between the, the feminist camp and the gay camp. And I wasn't really aware yeah. of that. And I'm, I'm also aware that this is largely a British social uh, phenomena, like a lot of the yeah. people involved in this, Julie Bendel, yourself, a lot of the, a lot of the rad femmes or the GC femmes, they're, you're all in this British kind of place. So you, there's like these class dynamics that as an American, like I'm, I, I'm aware of, but not really privy to. Maybe. Although the most extreme homophobia I've seen from GC circles has come from American feminists, if okay. I'm honest. Um, okay. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, 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 I mean, it's been fascinating, hasn't it? Like this, this, this thing. I think you're absolutely right that when you are in the middle of, when you're in the eye of a storm, or not even the eye of the storm, because the eye of the storm is the calm place, isn't it? When you're in the middle of this hurricane of just hundreds of people appearing on your timeline, yeah. throwing insults at you, you don't have time to do background checks on every single person who is doing it. Uh, you can see from the, the, the general images and the bios and everything, that broadly speaking, 99% of the people doing this are feminists or at least identify as being feminists. So there's that. Even if, say, 10% of those were bad actors, that still leaves us with 90%. still leaves us with hundreds of people within a feminist group calling me a liar, misrepresenting my position, etc. Um, calling me a misogynist, a grifter, etc. That's not a good sign because I'm none of those things. Anyone who's read anything I've ever written knows I'm none of those things. So Why do those insults work? I think this is a this is a in, well, it's not, important well, thing uh, to understand. Why do they work? In in what but in yeah. what respect do you mean work? Do you mean have the effect of hurting someone, or do you mean why why have they been adopted as uh, points of attack? You're a misogynist. You're and it goes thing well, with the homophobia is the same kind of like uh, uh, well, or the bigot say, or racist. Say, it's like it's yeah. all this bundle of like liberal. Um, social signifiers it's not just the liberal values but like if you're this then you're a bad person yeah i think the, the i should say the homophobia thing was a very minority thing i would i probably only saw about maybe between 50 and 100 genuinely homophobic things which in a day of thousands and thousands of bombardment 
I suppose you could say is, is, is still marginal. Why does it matter though? I mean, this is a naive question, but why does it matter that there's homophobia or there's misogyny or there's racism? And like, like, why is that a point of like you, if, if somebody is eliciting that behavior, if, if a group is associated with homophobes, then you can do that one Nazi at the dinner table party and completely dismiss. No, people are entitled to be homophobic and people are entitled to think whatever they want about me or people like me or what, you know, uh, that I, I'm not saying those people should be shut up. I'm saying I don't want to listen to that. I've got, you know, I've got no, t- I can't reason with that. That's not okay. something that I can like. And, and it also, I think, if you're serious about challenging gender identity ideology and you've got within your ranks people making these claims, invariably though, that tiny minority, those aberrations will come to represent the movement in the eyes of the movement's critics. And it's already happened. I had a trans activist emailing me gloating about this, saying, I told you this would happen. I've seen a trans activist posting screenshots of all the really grotesque uh, messages. And I will reiterate, there weren't many of the really bad ones, but they were enough to that we, the whole movement can now be uh, misrepresented as a result of it. But there, what there was a lot of is silence on the issue of these horrible, you know, you get these horrible tweets come in and the other feminists would just bypass it or just not say anything or just let that go. And that I think is is definitely part of the problem. But also when it comes to why do the accusations work? Well, one of the points is I think a lot of them are sincere. I think people start to believe their own lies. I think that's what happened here. So I, I'm like you I, being I wrote, a massage. I wrote, can I give you a very specific example of this? So I wrote a Substack piece today where I talked about one specific aspect of this pile on because you can't i couldn't write you the full narrative or what it's too confusing there's a million different things going on at once there's even some people in there trying to calm things down there's people having a go at it there are arguments going on about you in front of you and then there's people having trying to argue with you so it is absolutely impossible to create a coherent narrative and what that means is that anyone with an agenda can can pick and choose from what happened and create a narrative i've seen it happen today right so uh Lots of the fans of that feminist who attacked me, who libeled me online, I can't remember her name, Alessandra, some Alessandra, uh, some Italian um, uh, law scholar. And she very viciously came in and started throwing um, uh, malicious comments about. And she said that of, you were harming women and children. Yeah, she said my goal was to harm women and children. She also said I was a liar, that I was lying and all this, all this sort of stuff. But because she has a big following, it created a lot of abuse uh, in, the, in her wake. And of course, we're a total stranger. She knows nothing about me. It was, I mean, I honestly, I just looked at that tweet and I thought, never in a million years with a gun to my head would I post a tweet about that, about a total stranger. It was absolutely outrageous. And and no repentance, just doubling down, doubling down. But anyway, the point is, I, get, I gave this very specific example um, about, uh, we can come on to that if you want, because there's more to say, to say about that particular account and why I think that's so disturbing. Um, but let's talk a bit about this example I want to give of how, if you're trying to create an understanding of what happened, there was one specific tweet where an account uh, said made, uh, said something like, you are uh, adhering to a toxic, homophobic, sexist ideology, and you therefore have no credibility or integrity. This was from an account called, actually, I, I won't say the name because it's a small account. Um, but... And I replied saying, that's really extreme. And I think it is really extreme to go to someone who has spent years and years opposing this ideology with every fiber of his being and to say that you are a staunch defender of it is such an extreme thing to say. 
you know, rather than say, oh, well, we've got slight points of disagreement, but I can understand you're broadly against this movement. This person went full on and said, you are basically a, an extreme gender ideologue trans activist right now. So I said that was extreme. But by using that word, I then got endless comments from feminists saying, you've just called feminists extremists if they don't want to use uh, pronouns according to gender identity ideology. I had said the precise opposite. I had said, hmm. if you if you take the view that you are only going to use pronouns for biological sex, that is eminently sensible. That's the exact phrase I used. So we ha suddenly have a lie. Andrew Doyle is, an, is accusing feminists of being an extremist, something I have never done and never would do. Hmm. Now that lie is perpetuated. For about the next half hour, I was bombarded with, it must have been at least over 100 people saying, you're calling people women an extremist, etc. And I kept explaining very patiently. No, what I was talking about was this particular thing. Right. And I did it over and over and over again. I must have done it about 10, 20 times. And then I realized, so what's happened now is you've got people who've seized upon a lie that someone has told, taken the lie to be true, amplified it by repeating it. Other people see the amplification. And so they therefore take the liar's truth as gospel. Then they see me saying, that's not what I said. They take that as evidence of my duplicity because they've already convinced himself it's true. So then if I am a liar, if, if that's now decided I'm, I'm, I'm a liar, then I become a misogynist, of course, because what I started doing was when people were really insulting me is I block them as I always have, no matter who you are, because I don't want to be insulted. And they take the block as evidence that I don't want to listen to women's concerns, right? So then it becomes, I'm a liar, I'm blocking women, therefore I'm a misogynist, Therefore, I hate every woman on the planet. Therefore, I'm a grifter. Therefore, whatever. And you see how this happens. You see how this works. Yeah. Starts with a, one, one tweet that was factually wrong. Actually, I think that one tweet probably caused about five hours of abuse because of this escalating principle. That's it's why like, it's like it's like a thousand nuns with a thousand slippers, Andrew yeah. Doyle, and you're just not over that slipper. Maybe. And so let's get back to the the specific because I've had a lot of people saying, you know, why did you single out this law scholar? Well, let me let me uh, read that just for a second. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Alessandra Esteriti. Esteriti. Yeah, I don't Asteriti. I don't know her from Adam. I've got nothing against her. Let me just person. read the tweet that we're we're talking just for full yeah, disclosure. Yeah. And if Alessandra listens to this and she wants to reach out to me, I'm I'm more than happy to have her on. Um, and she writes, "I simply do not trust you," and this is to you. Um, because you lie about a man's sex to pander to his feelings and his sexual fetish. What else are you ready to do for men knowing you harm women and children? And just to interpret that a little bit by what she's saying is that by using Dave, Debbie Hayton's preferred pronouns of she, you are, um, you're lying about Debbie's sex and pandering to his feelings and sexual fetish. So there's a few things, aren't there? So the first thing is the, I think, probably willful misunderstanding. You know, the accusation that I've lied about someone's sex. That's not something I've actually ever done in my life. I, do, I don't lie about people's sex. I mean, not even Debbie lies about Debbie's sex. Do you know what I mean? So it's a bizarre thing to say. Um, I mean, in truth, I haven't referred to anyone by preferred pronouns for years, mostly because all the trans people who I knew now despise me. Uh, and they've cut me out. So that that hasn't been an issue. Um, there was one moment early in the show where there was a tease to break, and it mentioned the author Debbie Hayton, who will be discussing her book. Now, of course, 
I didn't write that. You know, I don't write the links. And I read that out loud. And of course, and you know, and I, I think, as I said, I thought to myself, is that going to cause a problem? You can't live edit, though, in an auto queue on, uh, on TV. You'll stumble. It'll be unprofessional. But I, I sort of thought the back of my mind. And then I thought, well, why would it matter? It's a, it's a, it's a tease, okay? Even though I understand the strength of feeling. But you already knew. You already had the voices in your head. You already something knew you could trust. Oh, yeah, something. So not prov- uh, it wasn't a provocation. You're like, uh-oh. That, like, that's going to Yeah, gonna more like that. Provoke. And when it comes to the actual interview itself, and I think people should watch the interview with Debbie Hayton online. Uh, she, her pronouns are never used in the whole interview. So for a start, this was an odd, it's an odd criticism to level at me, given that I just haven't done it. The second point is that the 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 insinuate the immediate leap to the idea that I lie, that I'm a liar, that I'm dishonest, I find very offensive, deeply offensive, because it's just not something I do. Uh, that I'm pandering to fetishes. I don't even know what that means. I don't know why I would do that. Look at the way that's phrased. It's so, now, if you want to talk about provocative, that's provocative. Then there's a secondary aspect of, of what was said, which was that, what else are you prepared to do for men? The insinuation being that I'm a kind of men's rights activist who always stand up for men. The vast majority of the guests I have on my show are in fact women. And I don't, I'm not, I have no interest in being a men's rights activist. I am a liberal and I believe everyone should have equal rights, male, female, black, white, gay, straight, whatever. It's just a horrible thing to suggest about a human being that you do not know and know nothing about. And then you get that awful thing that my objective is to harm women and children. I mean, that's just profoundly offensive. That is uh, an outright slur, borderline libel. And you just think, well, if that's the first thing you say, I mean, what's really interesting about that is if I had my concerns about something that someone had said in the public eye, by the way, this is a big account. She's a public figure. She writes for the Critic magazine, a, a magazine that I myself write for. This isn't someone who deserves anonymity. If you're going to go full in and libel someone online, you should expect to write a reply. This was my right of reply. Um, now, if you're going to go full in in that way, because I wouldn't do that. I would say, I would ask some questions. I'd say, okay, can you clarify your position on this? I wouldn't have gone straight in and say, oh, well, you clearly are an evil, raging bigot who hates women and hates men. But that's what she did. And she did that in front of the world, right? Now, I just don't understand that mentality. Hmm. It, I, I, it's not something I would ever do. So therefore, I can't understand it it smacks to me of having a complete lack of a moral compass. Why would you behave like that? Why? Um, and what's really fascinating about this, this is what, it's pure TRA, tra- uh, trans right activist tactics, all of this, is you you are the abuser. She was the abuser. She came in abusing, insulting, spitting fire. And then I stand up for myself, which abusers don't like, bullies don't like. And then she plays the victim. Every bully in the playground has done this. They beat up on someone, then they go to the teacher and say, oh, but he was calling me names. He was doing all of this. This is abuse. This is um, abuser's tactics. It's textbook. Now, the fact that I've, I've stood up for myself with this has annoyed a lot of women because they, they seem to have the view that you should never stand up for yourself if a woman says something. Well, to me, that's a kind of soft misogyny. And I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to do it with a, uh, a big mm-hmm. account like that that has no compunction whatsoever about behaving in the most morally objectionable way. And then, of course, I asked the question, like, why is this person being so vicious to me? What's going on? I've experienced inexplicable toxicity in the past. And nine times out of 10, it's come from a a homophobic place, even in professional contexts where it's been proven to be a homophobic thing. So I asked the question. I said, is this homophobia? Are you doing this because I'm a gay man? I didn't say you are homophobic. I said, is this because? Um, And then there was some back and forth with other people. Um, And... So now what they now what the those particular people are doing are suggesting that I've attacked a woman and smeared her as a homophobe. No, the context of this 
uh-huh. is the def- is the defense against a needless libel. And I may have phrased things badly. I accept that 100% because in the middle, when, you're in the, when you're being attacked by thousands of people at the same time and a big account weighs in and suddenly makes matters 100 times worse, you're not thinking straight. So uh, I, I'm willing to accept that 100%. Like I, but I still come back to this point. What kind of person posts that kind of tweet about a complete stranger? Hmm. And I'd be really interested to know how she could possibly defend it. Well, I'm going to bring up a super chat from Corinna Cohn. I don't know if you've met Corinna, wonderful person. Um, The woke oppressed, oppressor oppressed dynamic. This is Corinna. The woke oppressor oppressed dynamic is embraced by some of these feminists who would feel lost and without purpose unless they fight for liberation. Same ideology, different focus. And I wonder if it's not so much um, Alessandra doing that as that that kind of behavior is accepted within the movement because the movement is a fight for liberation and they're trying to fight against that which they see as the oppressor. That that I understand. And you as a man, you as a man, if you mitigate from their fight for liberation, are on the side of those who would hurt women and children. I mean, I don't, I'm not... you know for well i don't play those games in terms of identity politics i don't see people in terms of their sex gender whatever however to mitigate that what i would say is i do understand it insofar as i think what you have to remember is the vast majority of sexual violence is committed by men and the vast majority of that sexual violence is committed against women and we are living in a world where that is a reality and a lot of women have gone through absolutely horrendous things at the hands of men and i am not one to blame anyone for having anger about that and for sometimes being unjust about that. And to start, you know, it's a bit like when Muhammad Ali talked to, I think it was Michael Parkinson. And he said, you know, as black people, we sometimes think of um, hundreds of snakes coming towards the house. And what he said was, you know, he's talking about white people there. He's saying, I'm going to shut out white people entirely because yes, hundreds of snakes might be coming towards the house and only one or two of them are going to be poisonous, but you don't know which ones. And I think that mentality, but I also disagree with that, by the way, because I, uh, but, but I understand it. And I think that is the mentality that a lot of feminist activists have, is that when people have been through, through so many horrible experiences with men, you start to assume that there is something about men that is toxic. That's why they use the phrase toxic masculinity. So whilst I don't agree with it, I understand it. Now, if someone had to come onto that thread and said, look, this is the context here, you know, then I might have been a bit more temperate. Um, but all I could see was someone deliberately attempting to stir up hatred against me and doing a damn good job. Uh, so yeah, all of this, you see, what, what would have been great is if, 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 if we'd have got on a, a conversation like this and talked about it and then things could have, uh, would have immediately de-escalated, but of course that didn't happen. And then since then I've been contacted by all these gay activists, mostly in America, talking about how this particular person and her allies have often sort of piled onto gay people. They, apparently she was attacking Fred Sargent, a veteran of the Stonewall riots the other day. And you just think, okay, look, maybe she's not homophobic, but there is a pattern here, isn't there? There's something going on here that I find a bit troubling. And I, you know, I, and I do think it's worth considering. I'm not saying she is one thing or another. I do not know this person. In fact, I would say, I don't know anything about any of the people who were attacking me and people might have their own reasons. Even the people calling me a faggot or whatever they were doing, like that, they might have their own reasons for hating gay men. They might have their own things going on in their life. 
probably I am not the target. Well, I'm definitely not because all of them have different ideas about what I believe. You know, I get called a Nazi or a communist. I get called homophobic. I get called a sodomite. I get called far left. I get called far right. You know, no one really knows what I am. Well, actually, the people who read my stuff and actually listen do know what I am. But 99% of the people who talk about me or to me online are talking to a version of me in their own heads. Now, I can't, I can't really accommodate that. So it might just be that Alessandra had created this monster of who she thought I was and fully believed it. And that would, I suppose, explain the ferocity, but it does not excuse the ferocity. That's what I'm saying. I'd be more than happy uh, to talk to her. Well, actually, I don't know if I would now, because to be honest, the doubling down, the trying to, uh, mm. trying to exacerbate, trying to send her followers onto my back to make things even worse, without any moment of reflection, I, I, there's no evidence that this is a reasonable person as far as I can see. And I need to reserve my conversations for people who are reasonable, even if it's people who fundamentally disagree with me. What, uh, this is, this is a, a, a broader question, but what does, what do liberals do with the traumatized and, um, those who are not functioning on all cylinders? I'm not saying that the traumatized are stupid, but like there are swaths of society who aren't terribly intelligent. There's swaths of society who are entrenched in an ideology. Like what, how does liberalism accommodate illiberalism? Really good question. It's probably going to be the subject of my next book. I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think about, and, and you know, one of the conclusions I kind of reach is you have to kind of circumvent. One of the reasons I've gone off Twitter and, and well, I say I've gone, I'm just going to occasionally post stuff about my Substack. I want to move everything to Substack is because I think I, I have to circumvent the illiberal because I can't talk to them. And I think there are people who can talk to them. Uh, is it Daryl Davis, the musician who de-radicalizes members of the KKK? I mean, incredible, incredible that you can sit there with someone so unreasonable and talk them out of that is so admirable. It's so amazing. I cannot do it. I don't have the skill and I don't have the patience. I look at all these people, you know, throwing death threats and rape threats at JK Rowling on a daily basis. And I think, how would you begin with someone like that? How would you begin to sit down and talk to someone like that? You know, I think there's, um, which is another thing, by the way, a lot of the extra flack I've had is like, oh, well, what your experience hasn't been as bad as some feminist experience. Well, firstly, how do you know? Uh, it's not, I mean, actually, I, I, I get a lot of threats all the time, although I've never had them from feminists, I should say that. They, they just don't do that. Even the really mm. vicious ones don't send death threats. I get that from the far left a lot. And trans rights activists, I don't get it from feminists. So this both sides thing about bad behavior. There is bad behavior on both sides, but there's not threats of violence and death on both sides. Apart from that one feminist from America who said she wanted to kill gay men, which, you know, as I say, is an aberration. Um, but um, when you look at someone like J.K. Rowling, and I don't get the anywhere near the abuse that she gets. And I don't know how she remains uh, so calm and principled and is able to do what she does. Uh, mm. I don't know how she does it. I imagine she has everything switched off, all of the notification, notifications switched off. But it must be there. It must be, you know, it must be, she must be aware of it. Well, she is aware of it. She said she could paper the house with the threats that she gets. It's unbelievable stuff. How do you deal with those mindsets? Now, either they are behaving this way because they are, you know, sociopathic, psychopathic. There's a lot of people like that. Or they are, or they have genuinely convinced themselves that JK Rowling is the devil incarnate. There are going to be a lot of people like that. Ultimately, I think the way that liberalism wins out is that you restrict your attention. As I say, this is my reason for moving to Substack. You restrict your attention to those who are capable of discussion. What I really want to happen with my Substack is I want people who disagree with me 
to come and talk to me. And it will be a forum where you're not gonna get abuse. You're not gonna get, no one's gonna pay to abuse me, I don't think. And so you can have- <laughs> There's well, probably maybe. a market for that, Andrew. Yeah, there probably is. But why not, but we can have a discussions. So in other words, my, my solution, I suppose, is circumvent the, 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 the crazy people, the, the, the people who have no social skills, the people who are, uh, maybe the people who are good people, but they're so angry that they behave badly, which I'm willing to concede might be the case in this Alessandra person's case. It might be the case in, all, in a lot of these people's cases, but I cannot put my mental health through the, the, the issue of dealing with someone like that. So I will have the conversations with people who are able to have adult conversations and I'll let everyone else rage into cyberspace and good luck to them. But I tell you what, that kind of approach is absolute poison to any kind of movement, because as I say, all of this has been an absolute boon for trans activism. And, and by the way, a lot of people have said to me, oh, you've, you've just, you, you're helping the trans activists. No, I'm, the people who are helping the trans activists are the people who pile on to me. The fact that I respond to it and talk about it, that's not my problem. That's their problem for doing it in the first place. What was I meant to do? Just crawl into a shell and pretend it didn't happen? I think that would be unrealistic, if I'm honest. Hmm. What do you mean by mental health? How does this negatively affect your mental health? Well, you don't Another sleep. naive question. You so, don't sleep. So you it don't, really... You don't, it really you... It just fills yeah, you I mean, with whenever... anxiety. Like, why? It's just words on a screen. And this is a naive uh, yeah. question. It's just words on the yeah, screen. It, why do you, know, it, why do it, you it, respond? It why do you care? Well, like I say, partly it's my own problem for not putting the phone down. But there is something quite... We are not built to have thousands of strangers abusing us in a sustained short period of time. It's the... Uh, was it Peterson talked about this? The equivalent of the, the mob appearing at your door with pitchforks and, and torches... Uh, we don't like to be misrepresented and misunderstood and, and, and hated. It's not in our nature, you know. I don't like it in public. If I think I've inadvertently offended someone, I will go out my way to talk to them and try and, because partly because I feel bad about what's happened, but also because I hate the sensation of, oh my God, what have I done to this person? Mm -hmm. We are not built for this. It is incredibly psychologically damaging to be piled on. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a sense of something spiraling out of control, a perception of you that is so not just false, but 100% the opposite of what you are. And there's nothing you can do to redress it. And, you know, I end up not sleeping and eating. I end up, uh, everyone I know who's had this goes right into the abyss when this goes on. I don't think people who haven't experienced it can really understand it. I think there are people who experience it and don't give a damn and it's water off a duck's back. And I think that is amazing. And I envy that kind of robust uh, attitude. But I think if you're someone like me, who's a bit sensitive and, uh, and who has this weird faith in the goodness of humanity to see thousands of people just dispense with human empathy simultaneously in a mob and target it at you is not pleasant. But also I've always had a problem with crowds who all think the same way. I find it very disturbing. It's the reason I don't go to protests. Even if I really care about the issue, I just get, I just have a sense of, uh, Oh my God, we're part of the herd. Now we're part of the Borg that, you know, and I, and I don't like it. And so all of those, it's a combination of all those factors. It's partly my temperament. It's partly who I am. It's partly the circumstances. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't want to go into it fully, but it, yes, it's had yeah. an absolutely terrible effect on me uh, psychologically. 
And so I, and I keep, you know, and every time this happens, friends of mine say, look, after what happened, you need to just not go, you need to get off Twitter. And I keep going back to it. And I say, I take the share of the blame. Why didn't I just delete Twitter four years ago? Because I'm fascinated. I'm like, what's going on? So I think I've actually made a good uh, step forward this week as far as moving everything to Substack. Like I can handle people coming on there and abusing me. It won't be thousands. You know what I mean? It'll be one or two. And that's fine. Like that's fine. I'm a comedian. I get heckled all the time. I enjoy a bit of that. Right. Hmm. But that's not what a Twitter pile on is. And anyone who tells you and picks out on cherry picks a few tweets and says, oh, this is all that happened. Those are those people are not being honest. They cannot see what the yeah. target sees. And yeah. the extent of it is it's insane. And that's why I think and because people it brings out that Lord of the Flies moment. You know, people are seeing someone being victimized and they want to join in. It's that in, insane bloodlust that we must have in some evolutionary way, you know. And uh, I yeah. also hate to see people behave like that. I just think, you know, and I wonder whether I've done it myself. I've seen sometimes when people have been criticizing a public figure and I've also criticized them. And now I'm thinking, well, is that the right timing to do that when there are thousands of mm. people doing it? Maybe not, maybe not, because, you know, we say, well, these big famous people, why, why they should be held to account. I don't care how rich someone like J.K. Rowling is or how powerful. It's still, it must still hurt, you know? I, I, and I think, but well, I do it, think... It, on that note is... Go on, sorry. No, criticism about... Criticism of powerful people and people in the public eye is important. I never want to not be criticised for what I've said. What I, but what I don't want is to have thousands of people lying about me to my face. That's not what we're talking about here. And by the way, they're entitled to lie about me. I'm not trying to censor them. I just don't want to see it, right? If yeah. I go away, make up this imaginary version of me and talk about that straw man. All you want, burn the straw Andrew Doyle. Fine, I don't care, it's not me. But I don't need to get involved in that. And I, I, would, lo- I would love to hear a coherent argument as to why I should. Why you should? Yeah, why should I? stay on Twitter and allow and just and just accept the dog pine. What's what, what's the benefit for me? Mm, I don't know. It's fascinating. It's stimulating. And you might find uh, you might find ideas, but it doesn't sound like you're learning much from this. Like, no, I mean, if you end up chewing your limbs off because of the anxiety and, and psychological damage, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's productive. For one thing, I wouldn't be able to write anymore or do any work. I think, I, you know, I think we have to just be realistic about it. I, Twitter yeah. for me is, is it. I will very occasionally post something on twitter maybe links to my Substack, and as in my mindset at the moment that's it i I don't want to go back on it we'll see gen x uh, woman uh, wants to tell you don't engage with them andrew make a statement then mute and ignore same with tras and these rad fems they're two sides of the same coin what is the um from your point of view, it sounds like you're avoiding blaming feminism on this. You're not you're not devolving into thinking of them as a group. Like you've been very careful in this conversation, so it's far as true. I've heard, to to really speak about the individual and not the movement. Um, but you did say whenever a movement starts to act, yeah. behave this way, uh, and I'm just know, wondering. What I meant by that your was... experience, like with, I don't know to what extent you were involved in gay rights or that which, uh, you know, like gay marriage. I don't know how it shook out in your country or to what extent you uh, you facilitated that or involved in that. It doesn't seem like you even want to be involved in any identity group, even if it advances your own interests. But 
no. you're aware that there there's a need for that or like there's at least a market yeah. for that i had a, i had some involvement in gay rights even insofar as just being a, an out gay teacher uh even insofar as um being in a sh i was in a couple of shows which were to raise money um, and promote uh, gay rights um i've always been someone who has spoken about it been open about it and i've cared about it deeply uh, and I've also, it's been, you know, and also because I grew up at a time where you couldn't be openly gay, things have changed, thankfully. So I don't, and I, and I believe that organizing and movements, and I'm very, I, no, I, I, this isn't a feminism problem. It isn't. I, I don't think, I mean, you know, I don't think that you can really be a feminist if you start hating gay men and, and say, so, you know, I, I, I think this stuff is, uh, and nor do I think it is, it is a particularly sensible well, look, I don't know. Look, I'm not, I'm not, I am not going to stigmatize a whole movement on the basis of, min of a minority, a toxic minority within that movement, because it's not fair and it's not true. But what I would say is that when you're involved in a movement and there are really, really toxic elements, it is kind of important that you, you speak out against them, I think. Though, for instance, when uh, that trans right activist appeared at Trans Pride in London, stood on stage and said, if you see a turf, punch them in the fucking face and the whole crowd cheered at that point i think if i were in that crowd if i were part of that movement i think oh no because it's not just that there's a bad apple calling for violence against women it's everyone else cheering and endorsing it at that point i would want to stand on that stage and say i think everyone who cheered just now ought to be ashamed of themselves we need to root this out of our movement because of course what then happens is that becomes the perception of the movement uh and also it's just uh, unpleasant in, in its own right so i think there is a kind of not necessarily responsibility. No one is responsible for what anyone else says, but just strategically more than anything, it's it's really important. I mean, if I was at a gay rights march back in the day when I would have gone to something like that, uh, and someone stood up and called to kill straight people, I would have had something to say about it, and I would have objected then and there. Similarly, when you have the pro-Palestine marches and people are walking around with signs that are openly anti-Semitic, openly calling for Jew hatred, I would want to say, "Don't! What are you doing?" Why is, for instance, no one standing up at those marches and saying Hamas yeah. needs to release the hostages and, and disband themselves? Why is no one doing that? And so what I'm saying is not that, because the majority of people on those marches are peaceful, but there is a tolerance for the extremist few. And I, I think that's, and I suppose that has been the case in gay rights, maybe. Um, I don't think the women who only use pronouns for biological for biological sex are in any way extremists and i would never use that term i think the ones who say gay men are evil and prone to paedophilia are extremists and i think um it's it's quite important to distance yourself if you want to be a successful movement for political change it's quite important to distance yourself from that this is why you know when we had um what was the far right party in the uk bmp Continually, BMP po politicians were outed as saying something horrendously racist, etc. And it got to the point where it's like, okay, well, that's a racist party. That's a far right party. Hmm. Um, hmm. Whenever that happens in a mainstream party, they get rid of that person, distance themselves from it. That's important because if if you tolerate it, then there's a perception, yeah. and it is impossible to achieve anything with that uh, perception. Benjamin, I, this, I'm conscious this has got very, very serious. But can I say the last person to say that comment was right. Like, I should just ignore them. But I just want to say on that point, the problem is that when I block all the, the people who are particularly aggressive and hateful, I then get piled on for blocking. And, peop and people then pile on and say, I thought you were free speech. And then I have to explain <laughs> again and again that blocking someone on 
it's, a, it's not a threat to their free speech. I mean, I wrote a book about this, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> you have to explain that basic principle a million times. It gets boring to the extent that then I start blocking people who ask me about it because I'm like, I've written a book about it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing this again. So I don't think any of those things work. You could oh. mute, you could mute, but then a lot of my uh, haters or detractors, whatever you want to call them, yeah. I'm not talking about from the feminist groups, mostly from the far left and from the trans groups, they will post continually libelous stuff under your thing and they will mass report you. And actually the only way to stop that is to block rather than mute. Uh, so do you know what, Benjamin, it doesn't matter. I'm done with it. I'm not going to do Twitter anymore. This is not, <laughs> I don't need to have to deal with this infantile playground stuff. No one does really. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting to see, um, to see the difference between, well, I mean, even I have like this, um, persona of you that I've built in my head on Twitter because you just do that with everybody. You just I just go through and you like kind of make a persona of everybody. What is my persona in your in your well, head? Just uh, somebody wants to turn the church gay in in the happy in the happy way. In, I see the, what you mean. Birth. But anyways, I, I mean I I don't know. Like I don't know uh, all the things that go on with you, you know, and then you see people talking about you and then you, you but, and so you, you create a, a version of them in your head that is talking to this version of you in your head. So we're all uh, running these uh, really crunchy kind of models of each other in our heads. And so getting the opportunity to hear how sensitive and, and prone to, to, to being bruised you actually are like it, it like it, opens up i'm joking that was my dry i'm gonna say i'm gonna say i don't think I, anyway like, i mean no i'm just saying i'm just saying and like wonder hearing, why i accuse you of flirting benjamin because this sound <laughs> this is what you're this is what people do i know what you're like this is what people do uh, they coddle you is that is that the way to your heart andrew doyle no i'm just saying it, it's no. it's impossible out in that forum in the twitter forum to not be dealing with effigies of each other now you can yeah, have more or less complex or more or less um you know uh positive versions of the people that you're interacting with your head the opportunity to get to speak to you and hear out your reasoning it, it extends you from just being that model into you know being a you know. but, it, but it's also the same in real life there's a book by philip roth called the human stain i'm sure you've read it where he makes yeah. that point he says uh i'm paraphrasing but what we need to understand is that uh, your understanding of anyone else at any given point is at best slightly wrong that is i think absolutely right we don't know each other's souls we don't we can't see into each other's heads and so on social media we become avatars whether we like it or not we become caricatures interpreted by other people who have collectively interpreted you and 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 so therefore but why should they i mean they don't know me they don't know you so we, we are dealing with a lot of performativity a lot of a lot of puppetry mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it's a, just one big diorama and i would say it's unhelpful what, what happens though when you get in a face-to-face -face conversation with someone is you get to know them a bit i don't know you that well we've only ever spoken online but i have some sense of who you are which will be highly imperfect secretly you might be a serial killer or something i don't know but you seem very nice to me it seems unlikely you see like I, I get some sense of who you are and what you are um but that's only happened because we've had four or five long conversations over zoom but if i'd have just seen your tweets i would have a different perception of who benjamin voice is and it would be created in, in my mind um and i don't know what that would be maybe hyper masculine maybe uh <laughs> you know, some, you know someone a bit a bit br butch 
a gym bunny, mate. I don't know. A gym right? bunny. I don't know. I don't, Is I'm that what they're called? Like, a gym bunny? Like a hyper-masculine workout bro? A gym no, actually, bunny? That would, be, that would probably be... Uh, what would that? Uh, yeah, there's a word for it. You're probably a muscle Mary. If that if that was what you were actually, you're not that. You're not that. You're not. That. You you said something earlier of the follies in society. You were talking about like uh, you punching up and and describing the follies in society. That just sounds like a literary term. Could you just define that for me? What do you mean by follies in society? It's the essence of satire. I mean, what satire does is it takes aim at the at the powerful, and it talks about the vices vices that are held by the powerful. And that okay. is often, uh, uh, you know, because it's it's like look at any kind of satirical representation of power. Uh, look at the way that that is achieved. Look, I mean, look at on the basics, like something like Huckleberry Finn, where the, the powerful are the adults in the community, the God fearing Christian adults who are actually enslaving people, and and the boy is the one who sees through it. And so you get the satire working in in, in that way. Uh, does satire at- does satire that sort work on these uh, work for or against these uh, you know these, these communities that you're running into like these people this mob mentality or well, can you, you can you actually parody you definitely- that yeah yeah of course I mean there's been lots of people um, Gareth Roberts commented on my Substack today about Joe Walton's play The Erpington Camp where a group of people get into this frenzied uh, riot just but they don't even know why. You know, I mentioned the point in um, in uh, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. You, are you familiar with Julius Caesar, the play, presumably? Um, yeah. Y- yeah. Okay. So you remember in I don't Act have a committed scene- to memory, but. No, no. But in Act 3, Scene 3, there's a, a scene with uh, Sinner, the poet. Now, one of the conspirators in the play is called Sinner. So, you, you know, there's a bunch of people who kill Julius Caesar, right? And they kill him yeah, halfway et through. Yeah, Etu Brute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Etu Brute. Yes, exactly. Uh, although that wasn't what the sources say his last words were. He didn't say anything in Latin. He said, kaisu technon, which is a Greek phrase for you too child, which which is interesting because there was a suggestion that Brutus was actually Caesar's son, illegitimate son, which puts a whole new dynamic on the whole thing. Shakespeare doesn't go there, by the way. But anyway, I'm getting to, I'm digressing. But the point is that, that, that what's happened is the Caesar is stabbed halfway through the play. Then you have the crowds, because Caesar's a populist, the crowds are distressed and upset and angry. Brutus, the lead conspirator, comes out, speaks to them. By the end of the speech, they're really for Brutus and the elites. And they think, yes, Caesar should have died. Then Mark Antony comes out and does his famous Friends, Romans, Countrymen speech, and it turns them the, entirely the other way. And what's really interesting yeah. about that in relation to the dogpiling is this play is all about populism, but it's all also all about the way in which crowds can be manipulated by powerful, unscrupulous people. So you have this mob, and you're going along with it because the power of the rhetoric in that speech, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. The power of that rhetoric brings you along with it. And by the end of the speech, you're thinking, yes, the plebeians are right to riot and go after the conspirators and avenge Caesar's death. And if Shakespeare left it at that, it would be easy. It would be like, OK, well, this is a play about how if you whip up the public, if you whip up the crowds, it's de- it's, it's it, you know, they are righteous. They are right to do this. It's about power to the people. Right. And then a poet enters. And this was a scene that was not staged really for centuries until the early, until the 1930s when Orson Welles put it back in. Most directors left it out because it was it complicated matters, which is what Shakespeare does all the time. So you've got this righteous crowd avenging Caesar's death. But then they come across a poet called Sinner. One of the conspirators was called Sinner. And they say, what's your name? He says, I'm Sinner. And they say, ah, oh, he's a conspirator. He's Sinner the conspirator. Tear him, tear him to pieces. That's the exact phrase they use. And the poet says, no, I've just got the same name. I'm, I'm, I'm the poet. I'm actually on my way to Caesar's funeral because I like Caesar. I'm a friend of Caesar. And they say, it doesn't matter. 
tear him for his bad verses. So in other words, let's rip him apart anyway. This is satirical. So what Shakespeare is doing is saying when you've got a, a, a body of people, a, a group of, of, of the righteous anger of the mob, when you spur that on, when you galvanize that, the end point is completely unpredictable. It's what Hannah Arendt talked about in On Violence, which I think was from 1970, 1969, around then. Once you endorse violence or start a violent chain of events, you cannot predict where it goes. Shakespeare is satirizing the mob in that scene. I think it's really pertinent to what we're, what we're talking about. So I think you can satirize this kind of thing. I think if I were being a bit more uh, optimistic and sensible about it, I would have looked at all this as material. You know, I would have been like, okay, maybe I can do a comedy bit about this. Maybe I can write something satirical about this. But I was too upset. And so you can't really be... Uh, Come on, it's not, it's not too late. I mean, it's still material. You still own the rights to it. It's your experience. Yeah, it's your lived I'm, experience. Unless yeah, you're blocking it out. Or are you like just, you're, you're, you're using me and my, my question is just going to erase, erase no, the chalkboard. I, just... I could, yeah, I... I don't know how funny I would make it at the moment. And anyway, I'm, I've got all these other things I want to do. Yeah. Uh, not, least, not least, maybe write this book I'm talking about, write about liberalism and, and, and why so many people are turning against liberalism. And pe particularly free speech advocates and people on my side, supposedly, are now saying, well, look, it doesn't work, does it? Liberalism doesn't work. We need to dispense with it. And I'm really worried about that. But I think, Benjamin, mm -hmm. that is a conversation for another podcast because that is going to take us hours. And I'm already uh, running a bit late. You've so got to go anything else you want to talk about yeah i want you to plug your merch <laughs> my merch uh i have i'm gonna do some merch i'm gonna do like an andrew doyle punching bag so when people feel the need sort of dog pile they can just go and punch that you know and you can dress me up however you like like you can you can turn me into hitler give me a little hitler mustache if you think i'm a nazi you can put like a communist slogan on my chest if you think i'm a communist you know whatever you want uh and and just enjoy yourself like just knock yourselves out i won't have to see it it'll be fine I don't really have merch. Um, well, I've got books, I suppose. Uh, so I've written mm. a book, two books about liberalism and liberal values and the importance of liberal values. One is called Free Speech and Why It Matters. And the other one is called uh, uh, The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World. That's the one mm. that offended you because at one point I call Christians mirthless. And of course, that is one point out of a book of 120,000 words. And you got upset about that, didn't you, Benjamin? Um, yeah, I got terribly uh, upset. I threw a whole tantrum. I had to like right. re rebuild my it, studio from scratch after I wrote yeah, that. You absolutely read that. did. And then also, I would say, if you want to understand why blocking someone on social media isn't a threat to their free speech, read free speech and why it matters, or just mm. think about it for ten minutes. You'll get there. Uh, <laughs> ten. The other thing, not even. And then the other thing, um, uh, I've I've got two books as to Tanya McGrath. One is called Woke: A Guide to Social Justice. The second one was a children's book called My First Little Book of Intersectional Activism, which of course is not a children's book. Um, but it's dressed up as one. And the first book, as I say, was tw 2019. So five years ago that was written. And, I, you know, if you look at it now, I think you'll see like th this stuff was, I mean, nothing's changed. That's what scared me. Like things, have, yeah. if anything, have got worse. And I kind of thought that it wouldn't get worse. Um, but aside from that, the most important thing, I think, is I would like people to subscribe to my Substack. There's going to be a lot of free content. What's it called? Is it just andrewdoyle.substack.com? Andrew Andrew Doyle, uh, Substack. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff that people can read for free. So I don't, so that people, you know, if you can't afford it, you can still read it. What I, I, the reason I put a low cost, like just four pounds a month for people who want to comment is because that provides that shield for me so that I can just have conversations with people who aren't going to 
dogpile and throw abuse and the rest of it. Um, but also I want to devote quite a lot of time to it, which means I do, uh, I, I'm going to have to give up other work to do it. And I'd like that. So I, I think if, if people can support me in that way, that's another really good thing that, that people can do. And finally, Benjamin, what I want to say to you is if you're ever in Arizona, I was in Arizona last week, go to a place called Bear, Arizona, which is a place where they look after bears and wild wolves and uh so you're into bears is that what you're trying to uh, you're making a gay joke but yeah i kind of into bears but i love the fact that i went to america arizona the desert massive cacti and i got to feed a buffalo and i got to see wild wolves and i got um in fact i got this bear a grizzly bear painted this for me um, <laughs> this is a bear called hannah a, a proper grizzly bear massive thing and it's wonderful this place because they they have so much space like, they, like these bears these grizzly bears they were rescued as cubs they would have died the mother had been killed and they rescued these bears as cubs. they've got three of them and they are massive but they've given them so much space and the people who work there are just some of the nicest people i've met it was weird like, it's weird coming from near london where everyone's horrible and you go to arizona and everyone's really lovely and uh they look after these bears they respect nature they respect that anything with a mouth can bite as one of them said to me you don't you don't think these are your friends, but you look after them and you care for them. And uh, one of them painted me um, that hmm. rather beautiful. I think I think there's something to that. I think that's rather beautiful. And it's not I performing like bear stuff. It's, uh, you know, they do it voluntarily. It's just a naturally artistic oh. bear. But Bear Arizona, it's called. So I would recommend that. I don't know how far you are from Arizona. In fact, I don't know where you are, really. Benjamin. Quite quite a bit. It's not like England where we can drive anywhere. Um, oh, it's not. Okay. It's not. All right. No, fair enough. No. But I just thought but it was very interesting. Get there eventually. I didn't, I've never heard of that. You're such a softy, yeah. Andrew Doyle. I used to do Kung Fu. If you want to bring it on, man, we can do that. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got a blue sash, which sounds pretty good. It's actually terrible. Sash. It's only, the only the second level. Yeah, in Lao Gar Kung Fu, you only do sashes. You don't do belts. Uh, oh, okay. Isn't that a cravat? I would have loved a cravat, um, but it, 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 it wouldn't have suited the kind of aggressive style, uh, you know. Like Kung a sash does? Like <laughs> Yeah, I used to think it looked pretty cool, but now you come to mention it, it's 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 quite yeah, it's quite camp, in a way. Um, but yeah, I had to give up because I um, they started doing these sparring sessions. I was only a kid, and they started doing sparring sessions, uh, and I was doing ballet at the same time. And what I realised is in the sparring sessions, I get bruised awfully because I bruised like a peach, and uh, I was just basically paying to get beaten up. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to stick to the ballet because no one ever beat anyone up for a changement. Did they? The changement? No. You know what a changement is? No. no. <laughs> Not that gay. No. It's, where you, it's where you leap from third position and your you, your feet rotate when as you land. Do you still do that? God no. Okay. <laughs> no, that was the thing I did as a kid, and it was uh, I used to keep I had to keep it hidden from the boys at school. So it's one it was like this dirt because I knew they'd beat me up for it. It was like this dirty secret, you know, creeping off two nights a week to dance with a bunch of girls. I was the only boy in the class and I, you know, I'm there in my tights and I'm thinking, God, I used to have nightmares about the boys at school catching me in my tights. You know? <laughs> this explains a lot psychologically, I think. You might be able yeah. to draw a lot from this in terms of the dog part. Yeah, no, reaction. no, I love revealing you to the internet at large, Andrew. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. this premier spot in your life. It's all live, so I can't say, can you cut that bit out? But that's fine because no. I have no shame no. anymore. I have no shame. No, and by don't. the way, You're timing is good. My patch water is finished now. Let us uh, end the call. Thank you very much, Andrew Doyle. Um, your Substack and all your other stuff will be linked in the description. And you know, Twitter's fun, so I'm sure I'll see you on there anyways in a couple months. 
Don't count on it. Love you lots, Benjamin. Ciao. Bye. And see you, chat. Thanks, everybody, for showing up.